Chapter Twenty Three of Beyond These Voices. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C. Beyond These Voices by Mary Elizabeth Braden. Chapter Twenty Three vera told her husband that she did not mind solitude yet it was a face of ashen whiteness that he left behind when he shut the door of her dressing-room after his hurried and cheerful good-bye on the first day of the goodwood meeting he was driving his sixty-horsepower daimler to goodwood steering for himself while the chauffeur sat behind ready for road repairs or to give a hand in carrying a corpse to the nearest hospital the speed limit was naturally disregarded as the thing that claude wanted was excitement the hazards of the road as they sped past hamlet and farm followed by the long white dust cloud that flashed across the landscape like the fiery tail of a comet, while startled villagers gasped and wondered if a car had passed. Peril was the zest that made the journey worth doing, to feel that his hand upon the wheel held life at his disposal, and that any awkward turn in the road might bring him sudden death. He was gone, and Vera was alone in the gloomy London house so much more gloomy than the vast halls and galleries of the roman villa where colossal windows let in vast spaces of blue sky here the heavily draped sashes emitted only a slit of sunshine tempered by london smoke she was alone but she told herself that solitude did not matter it was not solitude that weighed upon her spirits as she roamed from room to room in the emptiness and silence it was the sense of not being alone that weighed upon her it was the consciousness of a silent presence the invisible third who had come between her and her husband of late who had come back into her life in the noontide of her love while passion reigned supreme and the man she loved filled her world the shadow had been lifted from her path she had seen all old things dimly dazzled by the glory of her life's sun she had remembered nothing except her childish bliss with the boy who was to be her fate her life began and ended in her husband as it had begun and ended in claude rutherford when he was only her friend and companion the light-hearted companion whose presence meant happiness in the first two years of her second marriage she had been completely absorbed in that transcendent love and in the ceaseless round of pleasure and excitements that her husband contrived for her filling her days and nights with emotional moments with little social triumphs and trivial ambitions. Satiety came in an hour, 
or it may be that it came so slowly and so gradually that there was an hour when vera awoke to the consciousness that she was tired of everything that the earth with all its changing loveliness its surprises of mountain and lake wood and river was but a sterile promontory and the blue vault above como only a pestilent congregation of vapors the suddenness of the revelation was startling but not the uncommon malady that afflicted the prince of denmark had been eating her heart for a long time before she was aware of its hold upon her and with the coming of satiety the distaste for amusement the distrust of love came the shadow memory that had been lulled sleep by the magic filter of passion awakened and was alive again she roamed the great silent house haunting with a morbid preference those rooms that were particularly associated with the dead man that range of spacious rooms on the ground floor where nothing had been altered since mario provana lived in them his library and the severe official-looking sitting-room adjoining where he was often closeted with his partners and allies his head clerks and managers his business visitors from vienna rome berlin madrid new york when the drawing-room had been transformed by a gayer style of decoration more in harmony with vera's frivolous entertainments claude had been urgent that these ground-floor rooms should be refurnished and every trace of their severe business-like aspect done away with and even certain priceless old masters that provana had been proud of dispatched with ruthless haste to christie's sale room but to his astonishment vera had told him that nothing was to be changed in the rooms her husband had occupied that all things touched or valued by him were to be sacred for this reason while approving claude's plan of color for the walls and draperies and carpets in the drawing-rooms she had insisted upon retaining the italian cabinets of ebony and ivory and the florentine mosaic tables the things that had been collected all over italy a century ago in the beginning of the provana riches and now solitary and dejected she moved restlessly from room to room sometimes standing before one of the bookcases in the library and looking along the titles of books that she had learnt to love in those far-off days before she had been launched by the disbrows a frail cockle-shell spinning round and round in the society whirlpool while she and her husband were still unfashionable enough to sit together in the autumn twilight or to spend tete-a-tete evenings in this solemn-looking room his mind was with her there to-day in the july sunshine as it had been in those evenings of past while he was a living man 
he remembered speech was in her ears today grave and earnest telling her the things she loved to hear widening her view of life opening the gate to new knowledge the knowledge of authors she had never heard of the story of heroes and statesmen philosophers and poets whose names had been only names till he made them living people people to be admired and loved he had taught her to comprehend and love dante to appreciate the verse of carducci the prose of manzoni he had taught her to revere carvor to adore st francis of assisi to weep for savernola and gordio bruno he had made italy a land of genius and valor a land alive from the alps to the adriatic with heroic memories he had made her know and love the history of his country almost as he himself loved it and now his spirit filled the room in which the man had lived his shadow had come into the house that had been his and had taken possession of the place and of the atmosphere whatever might still remain of the undisciplined love the passion of unreasoning youth that she had given to her second husband she could never again release herself from that first marriage tie it was the bond of death she went into the dining-room when luncheon was announced carrying a volume of browning and made some pretense of eating with the book open by the side of her plate a proceeding upon which the butler expatiated somewhat severely that afternoon as he lingered over tea in the housekeeper's comfortable parlor i don't know what's come over the missus he said as he took an unwelcome stranger out of his second cup and parenthetically this tea isn't what it was mrs manby she don't eat enough for a tomtit let alone a sparrow and she's falling back into that dreamy way she was in when provana was in america and for a long time before that as you may remember that time when it was always not at home to mr rutherford she was trying to break with him said mrs manby i give her credit for that so you may but that kind of trying was never known to answer when once they've begun to carry on remarked mr sedgwick i've watched too many cases not to know the inavailability of them he added having picked up the modern jargon more or less incorrectly the long day wore on to the melancholy twilight and vera was dreading the appearance of her maid to remind her that it was time to dress for her solitary dinner she had talked lightly of having lady susan at her disposal but she knew that her friend was at the very hour contributing to the vivacity of one of the smartest of the goodwood house parties 
and would be so engaged till the end of the week she had thought in her weariness of the mill round that solitude would be better than the society that had long become distasteful but she found that in the melancholy hour between dog and wolf the shadows in a london house were full of fear vague and shapeless fear an oppression that had neither form nor name and that was indefinitely worse than any materialization she was standing by the window in her morning room looking down into the gray emptiness of the wide carriage-way when no carriages were passing and on pavements where unfashionable pedestrians were moving quickly through a drizzling rain when a servant announced father hammond can you forgive me for calling at such an unorthodox time i happen to be passing your door as i have called several times at the right hour and not found you i thought i would try the wrong hour no hour can be wrong that brings you said she in a low voice as she gave him her hand and the words sounded more sincere than such speeches usually are i am glad to hear you say as much as i believe you in the whirlpool of frivolity a few serious moments may have the charm of contrast i have done with the whirlpool tired of it after only three years there are some of my flock who have been going round in the same witch's dance for a quarter of a century and are still in the crowd on the broken i can but think you have made the pace too fast since your second marriage or perhaps it is your husband who has made the pace you must not think that we both like the same things we are companions now as we were when i was a child at disbrow park and when we were so happy together her eyes filled with tears oh how far away that time of innocent gladness seemed as she looked back what an abyss yawned between then and now i have distressed you the priest said gently taking her hand no no but it is always painful to look back father hammond drew her towards the sofa by the open window and seated himself at her side let us have a really friendly talk now i have been so lucky as to find you alone he said i am glad very glad that you are tired of the whirlpool for to be tired of but a bad kind of life is the beginning of a better kind of life you know what i think of modern society especially in the feminine aspect and how i have grieved over the women who were made for better things than the witches dance we have talked of these things in your first husband's lifetime but then i thought you were taking your frivolous pleasures with a careless indifference that showed your heart was not engaged in them 
and that you had a mind for higher things even your dabbling with mr simon's quasi-supernatural philosophy was a sign of superiority his disciples are not the basest or most empty-headed among worldlings though they keep touch with the world in those days you know i had hopes of you but since you have been claude brotherford's wife i have seen you given up to an insatiate love of pleasure a headlong pursuit of every new thing the more extravagant and the more dangerous the more hotly pursued by you and your husband so that it has become a byword if the thing is to cost a fortune and to risk a life the rutherfords will be in it claude is impetuous easily caught by a novelty she said depreciatingly with lowered eyelids he was not always so impetuous rather a loiterer indifferent to all strenuous pleasures delighting in all that is best in literature and worshipping all that is best in art though too idle to achieve excellence even in the art he loved but since his marriage and forgive me if i say since his command of your wealth he has changed and degenerated you are not complimentary to his wife vera said with a faint laugh i am too much in earnest to be polite but it is not your influence that has done harm it is your money that fatal gold which has changed the whole aspect of society within the last thirty years a change that will continue from bad to worse as long as diamond mines and gold mines are productive and the inheritors of great names can smile at the vulgarity of millionaires who do them well and will give the open hand of friendship a host who to-morrow may be branded as a thief what does it matter if the thief has brought lord somebody's estate and shooting that and shooting that is among the best in england well it's all done with now as far as i'm concerned vera said wearily i used to go everywhere claude liked to go people laughed at us for being inseparable but i am sick to death of it all and now he must go to the fine houses alone no doubt he will be all the more welcome perhaps but i did not come to talk of trivialities or to echo hackneyed diatribes against a state of things so corrupt and evil that its vices have become the staple of every preacher's discourses cleric or layman i want to talk about you and your husband not about the world you live in since you have done with the whirlpool there is nothing to keep you from better influences will you let mine be the hand to lead you along the passive way of light and love the way that leads to pardon and peace vera turned from him 
trying to hide her agitation, but the feelings he had awakened were too strong, and she let her head fall upon the arm of the sofa, and gave herself up to a passion of tears. Pardon? she gasped amidst her sobs. You know I need pardon? We all need pity and pardon. No man's life is spotless, and the life you and Claude have been living is a life of sin, aimless, sensual, godless. I have had a wide experience of men. I have known the best and the worst, and I have seen the strange transmutations that may take place in a man under certain influences how the sinner may become a saint and the saint fall into an abyss of sin but i have never seen changes so sudden and so inexplicable as those i have seen in your husband whom i have known and i think i may say i have loved from the time when he began to have a will and a mind i hope you do not blame me for his having left the monastery and come back to the world how can i blame you when his mother was the active agent she is a good woman though a weak one where her affections are engaged she was perfectly frank with me she told me how you had refused to use your influence to keep her son in the world and she loved you because she thought it was his love for you that made him abandon his purpose she rejoiced in his marriage but i doubt if she has been any more edified than i have been in watching the life you and her son have been leading since then no i do not blame you for claude's sudden breakdown but i deeply deplore that he should have turned back since i know that his resolution to have done with the world was a right one astounding as it seemed to me when i first heard of it i urged him against a step for which i thought him utterly unprepared i did not believe in his vocation but after consideration made me take a different view of his case i knew that such a man would never have contemplated such a renew renunciation without so strong a reason that it was my duty to encourage him in the sacrifice of the world rather than to hold him back i will say something more than this mrs rutherford i will tell you that if it was to make his peace with god that your husband entered the roman monastery he lost all hope of peace when he left it and he will never know rest for his heart and his conscience until he returns to the path that leads to the cloister claude is happy enough vera answered lightly he has so many occupations and interests he is not as tired of things as i am but no doubt i shall have to go on giving parties now and then 
on Claude's account. He is not tired of the maelstrom, and it would not please him for me to drop out altogether, and to be talked about as eccentric or not quite right. She spoke with a weariness that moved the priest to pity, and then he spoke to her, as he had sometimes spoken in the past, words that were profoundly earnest, even eloquent, for what highly educated man, or even what uneducated man, can miss being eloquent when his faith is deeply rooted and sincere, and his feelings are strongly moved? He offered her the shelter of the church, the only armor of defense against the weariness and wickedness of life. He would have led her in the passive way of light and love. He offered her the only certain cure for that welt of which her husband had complained when he wanted to end his life in a cloister. He had pleaded with her before today, had tried to win her years ago, when the pleasures of life had still something of their first freshness. He had tried vainly then, and his efforts were as vain as now. She answered him coldly, almost mechanically. Yes, it was true that she was tired of everything, as Claude had been years before, before their marriage, as he would be again perhaps by and by. But the church could not help her. If she were to become a Roman Catholic, it would only be in order to escape from the world, to do as Claude had wished to do, and to make an end of life that had lost all savour. But until she was prepared to take the veil, she would remain as she was, a believer, but not in formulas, a believer in the afterlife and in the influencing minds the putrid souls that had crossed the river. I see you prefer Mr. Simon's religion of the day before yesterday to take that of the saints and martyrs of two thousand years ago, Cyprian Hammond said in his coldest tones as he rose to leave her. You are as dark a mystery as your husband is. God help you both for I fear I cannot. The gray darkness of a wet summer night was in the room as Vera rose to ring the bell and switch on the lamps. The clear white light showed her face drawn and pale, but very calm. She held out both her hands to the priest. Forgive me, she said, the day may come when I shall ask you to open the convent door for me, but I am not ready yet. End of chapter 23 Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C.